I love that what we're, we're singing right there. Um, the worship team have done an amazing job recently because without any consultation, they're kind of hitting on some of the things that I want to talk about. Um, that song, the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. That's a great ironic priestly blessing that the priest would speak over the, the people of Israel in the temple. And even that last song, we're singing that line, day and night, night and day, let incense arise. The priest would keep this, the incense of worship burning in the temple, the, the temple being the place where the people of God met with God. And so I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about the temple in some sense today. And um, I'd, I'd like us to talk together. So I, I can't, you know, I've got some notes here, but I would like to hear some stuff from you. So don't be shy. Um, so I was looking at this part. It's actually in all of the Gospels. Um, it's a story where Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. And each of the Gospels actually happens in a slightly different place. But um, I want to read the version from Mark today. Jesus goes into the temple. It says this in, in Mark 11, verse 15. I just want you to kind of pay attention to what's going on here. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. It's a nice, uh, gentle Jesus in the temple there, letting them know what he thinks. Now, what I wanted to ask you was, what is Jesus ticked off about? They're using the temple for their own thing. Okay, cool. Interesting, preventing non-Jews from experiencing God, okay. Anything else you think he's upset about? It's all right. All oh, right, they're abusing, you think they're abusing the word of God, the way that they're doing it. Okay, interesting. Cool, great, great. Yeah, I think those are all um, really good answers. Thank you. I'm done. That's it. <laughs> I'll just sit down. Why is Jesus so upset? And I, I think you guys have hit on it. The clue is actually, can we put that, sorry, I'm going to keep talking to the, to the slides. Can we put that one back up? There we go. So I think the clue is Jesus says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? So if he says, is it not written, he must be referring to scripture somewhere in the Bible. And remember at this point, Jesus didn't have this. There was no, no New Testament. So when he's referring to the scriptures, he's referring to the Hebrew scriptures, what we sometimes call the Old Testament. And the, the part that he's referring to is Isaiah 56. And if we put up, that up, let's read it. It says this, Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. 
And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel. I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. So why is Jesus quoting this passage about foreigners who want to come and worship God? Why is he quoting it at this moment? And I think he's quoting it because something has happened to the temple that has obscured at least part of its original intention. The temple was to be the place where God dwelt with his people, where God's people would come to serve him and where they would experience his presence. It was a place where Israel was to come and minister before God. He was their God and they were his people. But in addition to that, it was to be a place where their worship became a witness to all of the other nations about the greatness of God. And the temple that Jesus is standing in in his time is just kind of the latest expression of a temple culture that Israel had actually developed over centuries and centuries and centuries. And there had been changes and additions and things happened to the temple. And so I kind of want to walk us through that this morning, if that's all right. It's a little bit like if you're of a certain age, you'll remember through the keyhole, right? Who would live in a house like this? You remember that, Lloyd Grossman? Maybe for, oh, everyone on this side is like, what? MTV Cribs? Yeah, okay, you got that? Yeah, okay. We're going to have a look about God's, about God's house, right? This is like a house where my wife and I love to, um, my wife and I love to look at websites um, that are like houses, estate agents and houses that we can never, ever afford, you know, and never will ever be able to afford and just kind of dream what it would be like to live in and peek around how the other half live. So we're going to peek around to see how God and Israel lived. And the first temple I want to show you is actually, might be a bit unusual for you, it is actually Eden. So we don't have a lot of time to get into this. We'll maybe do another, another talk about this some other time. But if you look at the language that's used to talk about Eden, the way Eden is put together in Genesis, and the way that God commands Moses to, uh, to build the original tabernacle, you'll see a lot of parallels between the two. In fact, in the um, original temple, when it was built in Solomon's time, we'll get to that in a minute, actually a lot of the inside had pictures of trees and leaves and, and creation was inside the temple. So there's this connection between Eden um, and the temple. So, so Eden is the original temple. And what you'll see is from the center of Eden, there was supposed to be this spreading out across the whole earth. It was to be the place where God dwelt with his people, where they lived together, where people could experience the immediate and powerful presence of God with them at all times. And um, it's interesting that as you moved further and further into the center of the Eden temple, there's restrictions that come into place. So what's the restriction about the tree of, uh, the, tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden? You've not to eat 
of it. So there's a sense that at the center, there's something that needs to be respected. And then there's a sense of when you move out from the center, that it's kind of taking the presence of God with you. And the task that was given to Adam and Eve was to take what was happening in Eden and to cultivate it so that this kind of garden temple was to spread across the whole earth. And the whole earth would become this temple where God and people would live together. But there was, of course, an issue. And sin entered the picture when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's restriction on eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and so, as a result of that, there's an exclusion that happens. They're excluded from God's constant and immediate presence because of sin. And this is for their own good. It's not that God is saying, I don't like you anymore. You did a naughty thing to me. Get lost. I'm in the huff with you. It's that God is saying, now there's an issue because you cannot be in the presence, the immediate glorious presence of my holiness because it has now become destructive to you because of the sin that's now corrupted you. And so as the story goes on, God chooses a people and um, they end up in Egypt under Pharaoh and God rescues them, takes them out into the wilderness and they, God instructs them. He takes them to Sinai and they make a covenant. He makes a covenant with them, this kind of unbreakable bond that they will be, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And then he says, you guys are out here in the desert living in tents. So I'm going to live in a tent with you. God goes camping with the Israelites in the wilderness and makes his home among them. Can we go to the, the next slide? And this is kind of how it would have looked in a general sense. You see what's at the very center is the tabernacle where they would worship God. And then all of the people would gather around it. Their whole community is centered into this temple. And the temple was structured in a specific way. If we look at the next slide here, this tabernacle. Um, and as you can see, it's all kind of a tent structure. It's all mobile. They can move it around. Don't get too bothered up with the details here. Don't try to read all this stuff because we'll be here all day. Um, the main point is that in the middle here, you have what's called, right in the center, you have this little place called the Holy of Holies, and it's behind a curtain. And that's where they would keep the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where the intensity of God's holy presence was. And then you had what was called the Holy Place. Only the priests could go in there. Um, and when they were ceremonious, uh, ritually pure, they could go into that place and, and, and offer incense and sacrifices to the Lord. And then this court out here, anybody who was a ceremonially pure Israelite could come in here and make a sacrifice to God. Okay? So can't go in, nobody can go into the, the Holy Folies except the priest one day a year. All of the priests can go into the Holy Place, and then Israel can all come into this outer court. You with me? Cool, good, all right, great. Um, so what you've got here is the closer to God's presence you have, the more restrictions they are for the good of the people. And who was allowed to come to this tabernacle? Well, all of Israel was, but there's another little thing that we read in Numbers 15, and it says this. For the generations to come, Whenever a foreigner or anyone else living among you presents a food offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, they must do exactly as you do. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the foreigner residing among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. 
You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply to both of you, uh, both you and to the foreigner residing among you. So already at this point, we have this sense that God is saying, and I want everyone to come. And if they do come, the people from the other nations, if they come to worship me, you have to treat them exactly the same as you and allow them access um, to bring their sacrifice and their worship before God. And this was a, a, a mobile tabernacle. So wherever the Israelites went, the tabernacle went. Can you imagine pitching all these tents continually as you move around and putting this tabernacle up in the middle of it and putting everything in place? But wherever the Israelites went, God went with them. His presence was dwelling with them. And then after Israel entered the promised land and kind of established himself, uh, Solomon was given the task to build a permanent temple structure. And Solomon's temple, if we put that up, it looks a bit more grander, but the structure is essentially the same. It's no longer a mobile tabernacle, but it's a permanent temple in one location in Jerusalem. And as you can see, we've got again, in here, the Holy of Holies, where the ark is and where God's presence is most intense. The holy place where the priests could come. And then this kind of outer court where the people of Israel could come and present their offerings. And again, as you get closer into the middle, there's restrictions there. But essentially, it's a permanent version of the tabernacle. Slight issue to this, because wherever God's people went before in the wilderness, the tabernacle went with them. God's presence went with them. But now it's situated in one location. So if anybody wants to come to worship God, they have to come up to Jerusalem. So actually, there's another kind of layer of, there's a kind of a barrier there that's put into place. Some people were not able to come every year to go. So the, the worship of God is not as immediate to some of the people in Israel who might have lived in the outer regions. A bit more difficult in that sense. And who could come to the temple to worship? Well, the Israelites were all commanded to come and, and come up every, every year at different points during the year for feasts and festivals. But in 1 Kings, when they dedicate this temple, and Solomon is praying to God for God's glory to come and fill the temple. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays this. Likewise, when foreigners who are not of your people Israel come from a distant land because of your name, for they shall hear of your great name, your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm. When foreigners come and pray toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigners ask of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And so they may know that your name has been invoked on this house that I have built. So what do you have in here? In this house that's built for Israel and God to dwell together, even Solomon, who's built it, has made this plea to God. Let this be a place where the people who are not of Israel can also come and experience your greatness. May they be invited and may you hear their prayers and answer them so that they can know how great you are. And eventually over a long history of difficult things that happened for Israel, this temple is essentially destroyed and it's the attempt to rebuild it several times until we get to the point of Jesus when Herod, who is kind of a proxy king, um, the Romans are kind of over, kind of over um, Jerusalem and 
uh, occupying the area, and they, they put Herod in place as a king. And uh, he decides that he's going to rebuild the temple, and he makes this amazing stab at it. So you've got here Solomon's temple, we've just seen here, and you can just see the scale of Herod's temple. This is now massive. And people say this is the most glorious of all the temples that were built. Like, um, There's a, a Jewish phrase that said, if you haven't seen a temple unless you've seen Herod's temple. Um, beautiful. Uh, but do you notice anything about this? What's that? There's a wall. Yep. There's a, there's a lot added on, isn't there? So if you, if you take Solomon's temple and just compare it to the central part, it's about, other than the big, huge structure in the middle, it's about similar. Um, but then there's this whole section added on to the front. And this is where this gets slightly interesting in what we're talking about today. If we go on to the next, next diagram. So let's start again from in the middle. So in this, you've got the holy place where only the high priest can go once a year. Um, and then you've got the, um, the holy of holies is inside behind the curtain. The holy place, sorry, the holy of holies where the priest can go once a year. The holy place where only the, the male priests are allowed to go. Then you've got a priest's courtyard where the priest can hang out outside. In this middle section here, that is called the Israelites' courtyard. And that's where if you were a male Israelite with no sickness and you were, you were ritually pure, you could come to this point. Then you've got this courtyard, which is called the women's courtyard. And that's where if you had leprosy or any kind of illnesses or you were a woman, you could come to that part, okay? Um, and then you had this, see this line on the outside? This is a wall that was constructed. Um, and this wall was called the Soreg Wall. If we put up the diagram for that. Soreg Wall. Oh, go back. There we go. So on this wall, there was um, these inscriptions that said, no foreigner is to enter the barrier surrounding the sanctuary. He who is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. And some people contend that they actually would sometimes line up stones on the wall as kind of a warning that if you come in here, then be warned. Now, you can kind of understand this. The, the Jews are under occupation by the Romans, and the Roman culture is very strong. And it, it, there's a sense of that we might become, our, our culture might be swallowed up by the Roman culture. And so there's a sense of we need to protect this holy and sacred thing that we have, this temple place where we meet with God. But outside of this section was a courtyard called the Gentiles' courtyard. If we put the next slide up. See, here's the Gentiles' courtyard out here. So if you were not an Israelite, that's as far as you could come. And you were kept out by this wall. And that was understood by everybody. And in this Gentiles' courtyard is where they would set up market stalls. And they would sell birds and animals for sacrifice. So if you came to the temple and you needed to buy a sacrifice, you could purchase it there. And it's here, in this Gentile's courtyard, that Jesus is standing when he makes his proclamation in Mark 11, when they came to Jerusalem. 
and he starts to drive out those who are, who are selling and buying. And where he turns over the, the tables and he won't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And it's there that he teaches and says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And what Jesus is getting at is that there's restrictions that have been put in place to keep people out. And the intention, God's intention for this temple and for Israel's mission was actually to let the worship of God go out from this place to invite the nations in. This, they were to be a witness and the temple was to be a witness of the greatness of God where other people were welcomed. And that's what Jesus, in a sense, is upset about. He's upset that people were being prevented from coming close to worship God. And so what does Jesus think about this? What's, what's he going to do about it? What's going to happen? And in Mark 13, there's another occasion when the, he and his disciples are walking by the temple. And it says, as they came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Jesus has this prophetic sense that the temple, this temple structure, as in Jerusalem, is going to be done away with. And actually, it was destroyed in AD 70. And so if the temple is going to be destroyed, the place where God and his people meet, how, how is that meeting, that dwelling together, going to happen if there's no temple? And in John's account of this, um, of Jesus' freak out in, the, in the, the Gentile courtyard, there's an incident that happens immediately after it in, in John chapter 2, verse 18. The Jews, understandably, get kind of upset at what he's doing. He's, he's disrupting what's going on. And this is kind of part of their whole structure. And Jesus is upset because um, if that's the only place, the Gentile courtyard is the only place that the Gentiles can come and pray, and it's, it's become a market stall, and it's noise, and it's loud, and there's animals, then those Gentiles have nowhere. They, they can, imagine praying with all this stuff that's going on around you. And so he drives them all out. The Jews get upset. They come to him, and they say, what sign can you show us for doing this? Basically, what's your authority? Who are you to come in here and to disrupt our worship structures? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years. And you will raise it up in three days? But John helps us out. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus saw himself as the new temple where humans and God could meet. He was the structure where the presence of God came to dwell among his people. And so as Jesus moves through the towns and the cities and the countryside, and he goes to speak to people, he's like that tabernacle in the wilderness, moving around and taking the presence of God with him. And who does Jesus go to? He goes to the outcasts and the women and the sick and the sinners, even out to the Samaritans and people in other nations. And all this is happening outside of the temple structure. And then something incredible happens that when Jesus eventually 
goes to the cross and he gathers up the sins of all people, Israelite and Gentile, everyone. He gathers up all the sins on himself and he makes atonement for them once and for all on the cross. Matthew 27 says in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and breathed his last. This is the moment of his death. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. So at the time when Jesus makes atonement for the sin of all people, the temple, the curtain temple that, that was kind of to guard the presence of God is torn. And it's not just that now people can go in, in a sense, to where God is, but it's also in the sense that God's presence can come out and to go to all people. And the restrictions to God's presence in Jesus have been removed. This symbolized that the immediate glorious presence of God was leaving a single location and was moving out to where people were. And you see this pattern as the temple structure gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more located, um, more, more um, sedentary, it's stuck in a certain place, the worship gets restricted and restricted and restricted. But as Jesus removes those restrictions, we see the presence of God can go to many. And Paul touches on this in Ephesians 2. He's talking about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, and he says this to the Gentiles. Remember, at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And the wall that Paul's referring to is that wall that was around the temple that, caught, that created the division between Jew and Gentile. And in Galatians 3, Paul says this, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And there's more than a hint that Paul is referring to the restrictions, the divisions. Because if you were going to be, the only person who could go into God's presence was a, a male Jew who was, who was free because of um, uh, his uh, ceremonial purity. Everyone else had restrictions about how far that they could come. And Paul is getting at this sense that now, because of Jesus, all people can come into God's presence. And at Pentecost, what happens is that God's presence can come into all people who trust in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul also says, do you not know that you, and that's you all, if we were in Texas, I'd use a good Texas phrase, y'all. It's not talking about just about each individual. Paul's addressing the church, and he's saying, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So what happened to the temple? First, Jesus became the place where God and humans could meet. And then by his sending of the Holy Spirit, the church has become the place where God and humans dwell together. And that's why, I'm going to go on a little sideways thing here. That's why, see this. See, coming to church is more than just like, it's a good thing to do. It's healthy for me spiritually. I get a lot out of it. I get to fellowship with people. All those things are great. But this is a witness to the world, 
that people can meet with God and that there's not a restriction on who you are. We've got a lot of people here. We've actually got a lot of South Africans in here this morning. We've got a lot of people here from a lot of different places. And the one thing that binds us together is that God is here to meet with us and that we can meet with him. And that's what Jesus has done. Um, yeah, even at the end in Revelation, the very end of the story, it said the, 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 the author is describing the city that the people of God are living in with God. And it says there's no temple. It says because God himself is the temple and that all of his people dwell with him there. Okay, good. Right, so that's all the theology done. Now I've got like three minutes to say what do we learn from this. couple of things. The church ought to be the demonstration to the world of the way that God's presence breaks down barriers between people. And so we need to be on guard for anything that creates barriers and exclusions to people coming in to God's presence. And some of those things are things that are maybe sometimes we do Deliberately, and other times it's perhaps more inadvertent, the ways that we keep people on the outside, or we create kind of a hierarchy within the church. So I'll give you one. Uh, see people that stand up with a microphone and speak to you from their notes and read the Bible with authority and all that. That's great. Like, we need that in the church. But they are not more special than you. Um, see when you go onto your YouTube and you see videos of really great looking worship people with wonderful haircuts and nice clothes and they all just look so, they're just so ramped up all the time. I don't know how they find all the energy for it. You know, they are not any more, they're not any different than you. And we create this hierarchy sometimes say those are the spiritual people and we are the normal people. And you know this, but all of us are extraordinary because God dwells within us. And all of us are kind of normal because we're just humans. So we don't pedestal certain people because of a calling that they might have. And if you have a calling like that, one of your jobs is to chop down the pedestal and burn it whenever it gets built. Okay, that was a little rant, you get that? What about Jew or Greek? Greek was another term for Gentile, really. It's a substitute word in that sense. What about Jew or Greek? What about ethnic issues? Sometimes it's things that we don't often think about. Do, are our worship gatherings more geared towards a certain ethnic expression of worship? And what I mean by that is, are we really white? And we don't see it. Other ways for other people who have other expressions to experience God in our collective worship. What about slave or free? Socioeconomic restrictions. Yeah. Maybe sometimes you might have to think about if we're sometimes a little too middle class the way that we speak and the way that we express our worship to God 
and the people that we think are kind of like us and the people that we think need a bit more work to become like us. And if what's good is when we say to people, come to Jesus and he will make you more like him. What's bad is if we say, come into our church and we will make you more like us. And if that means to be well-behaved, polite, well-dressed, middle-class folk, then we're missing it. And I think that's inadvertent sometimes, but we need to be careful about that. What about male nor female? Well, listen, I could go on about that, and maybe we will later this year, because, and if I start going about it now, then we'll be here all day. But I just want to say that if you are a woman in this church, then you have as much right to any calling or any position as anyone else. And that's all I will say about that. And still, and yet still, we tend towards sometimes um, defaulting to males as the authority. And we need to be careful about that. These are the kind of things that Jesus will turn tables over. (laughs) Right? Because Jesus wants all to come to him. And our role is to be a witness to his greatness so that anybody has access. When we join with Jesus, then we welcome those considered outcasts. We welcome those that have been rejected by the world and by the church. We welcome those who are looked down upon by those who think they are better off. We welcome those that sometimes we may have tried to protect ourselves from before and we let down those guards. And so this morning, if you have been rejected, if you have had barriers put up between you and God, then I want you to say that the heart of Christ is that those barriers are torn down and that those walls are removed. And the, the restrictions to his presence that have been spoken over you by people are not his restrictions. His arms are open to you. And the desire that he has is that we all come honestly with who we are and our stuff and our sin. And we bring that to him. And we understand that his death on the cross has made atonement for everything that we have done. All the ways that we have rebelled against God. And that his resurrection has given us a new life and made a way for us to enter into the presence of God and for the presence of God to enter into us. God welcomes you. And not only that, he comes to dwell with you. And then, wherever you go and wherever we go, we become witnesses that God wants to dwell on the earth with people.